This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is constantly changing, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. We start this week with some news from the long weekend. Well, I'm not having a long weekend, and neither are you, probably, but Congress is. The House officially packed up for the weekend after Republican hardliners again tanked plans to fund your government. We're going to talk more about the forces that caused House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to abandon his latest plan to avert a government shutdown just eight days from now. Plus, are you a fan of happy clouds? Would you like to own a work of art from the first episode of Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting? We'll tell you how much that will cost if you're a collector. Helping us paint the picture this week, CNN national politics reporter Ava McCann. Welcome, Ava. Hi, good to be with you. Good to have you. Wendy Benjaminson is here. She's Washington senior editor for Bloomberg News. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. And Arthur Delaney is here, HuffPost reporter in the studio with me. Great to have you back, Arthur. Thank you. All right, gang, let's start here in Washington with a movie that we've all seen before. Although, I have to say, I'm not sure if I've ever seen such a dire version of this movie before. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tried to make progress on avoiding that government shutdown this week. But the Republican speaker ran headlong into... Republicans. On Thursday, Republicans blocked a procedural vote on defense spending for the second time, and this raises the risk of a government shutdown in just over a week. It's chaos on the Hill. I'm comfortable saying that, Ava, but where do things stand right now? Chaos indeed, Todd. You know, a moderate congressman from New York, Mike Lawler, he described this, he's a Republican, he described this all as a clown show. So that (laughs) sort of illustrates Uh, The frustration that we're seeing. But yeah, this is not the place House Speaker Kevin McCarthy thought or hoped that the House would be going into the weekend. They have to figure out a spending plan that will pass the House along party lines to fund the government. And what we have seen is Democrats have very little appetite to sort of bail them out. Um, This just has continued to evade McCarthy. He only has a five-seat majority And there are conservatives who have never voted for a spending bill. He outlined a plan earlier this week that would keep the government open for 30 days at about 1.47 trillion spending level. Uh, But that still is not palatable to enough of his members. So here we are careening towards a shutdown. Wendy, is there an off-ramp that you can see? Well, I know Kevin McCarthy's running around the Capitol looking for any sign that says exit, um, but I don't think there is a good one. There is one sort of possibly cooking out there in which moderates like Mike Lawler, the congressman from a New York district that Biden won, he's a Republican, but Biden won that same district, he's the uh, the congressman that Eva just mentioned, he has said that he might support 
getting other moderate Republicans to join with Democrats in what's called a discharge petition, which is essentially an end run around McCarthy, Matt Gates, all of those people, and forces a short-term spending plan to the House floor for an up-and-down vote. Yeah, discharge that, petitions take a long time. It's not a quick fix. No, no. that w- There would be a sh- shutdown until they could get that done. Of course, they're not coming back till Tuesday. <laughs> but they could, if this worked, it would be a short-term shutdown. Then it would read, the government would reopen, everything would start working again while they negotiated this and gave themselves possibly until the end of the year. The trouble with that for McCarthy is he would likely end up at the end of that losing his job. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me uh, let Kevin McCarthy speak for himself for a moment. This was McCarthy on Tuesday talking to reporters. He's confident he's going to find a way out of this. Nobody wins in a government shutdown. I knew changing Washington would not be easy. I knew people would fight or try to hold leverage for other things. I'm going to continue to just to focus on what's the right thing to do for the American people. And you know what? If it takes a fight, I'll have a fight. Kevin McCarthy, change agent there. But all of that will likely mean taking on the people who think that a shutdown is a good idea. Here's Florida Republican Congressman Byron Donalds on Wednesday. We're running a $2 trillion deficit. We're not fighting a war. We're not in a pandemic. That hurts everybody. That is crazy. Our members recognize that. Um, So we have members who want to do more in spending cuts. Makes total sense to me. Arthur, what's this really about? Is this about spending levels? Is this about don't fund Ukraine? Is this about impeach Joe Biden? Is this about show that Donald Trump has the power to oust Kevin McCarthy? Choice E, all of the above. What's this really about? It's all that stuff, but all that stuff is at the same time tangential. It's just a raw power struggle, and it's sillier than it even sounds the way we've described it because you hear about Republicans can't cut a deal. They're just trying to cut a deal among themselves, a deal that they all already know won't pass the Senate, won't be signed in law by the president. And so inevitably – and a lot of Republicans who aren't hardliners say this out loud every day – Eventually, there's going to be a deal with Democrats, and that's the only thing that will keep the government from partially shutting down. That's the end game, inevitably. And we're just going through this uh, for no reason, really, other than for the conservatives like Matt Gates to flex on McCarthy and dunk on him and get attention for themselves. Well, Eva, to Arthur's point, um, Matt Gates, I think, said yesterday on a podcast that, and I'm paraphrasing, that the House is now operating under Matt Gates' rules. What a thing to say. What a way to troll the speaker. Uh, one of our Capitol Hill colleagues found a motion to vacate in a bathroom this week and put it on Twitter. So what does all of that mean? A motion to vacate means we can kick out the speaker. Is a, a move to oust McCarthy inevitable here, Eva? I mean, it, this is the the finding the motion in the bathroom. Talk about political theater. Listen, it, it does seem like the Florida congressman is the one really running the conference. Uh, he has repeatedly made this threat. Uh, this is a concession that Speaker Mar- McCarthy made to get the gavel, that it would only take one member to introduce a motion to vacate. And we've even 
heard, and you know, he could be joking here, but Congressman Gates suggesting the Democrats should side with him uh, if it comes to this to oust the speaker. Hmm. So, uh, but I guess the answer to your question, though, Todd, is look, we really don't know. We really don't know if if he's going to get the boot, hmm. but he could ultimately, if McCarthy, in order to avoid a shutdown, has to work with Democrats. That's something that will really agitate his right flank. Well, Arthur, uh, Matt Gates is only running the House if Kevin McCarthy doesn't work with Democrats. I mean, he could give some Democrats the stuff that they want and kind of hold together a, I dare say, a bipartisan coalition and run the House. Is that feasible? Is that a fantasy land? It, it, it's That's a good point. I mean, Matt Gates is in charge because Kevin McCarthy is not uh, you know, taking charge of the situation himself. A, fu- a funny thing about Matt Gates when he was coming up in in Florida politics, sort of in his father's shadow. His father was was a uh, a lawmaker as well. They called him Baby Gates, and our colleague Matt Laszlo found this motion to vacate in a bathroom on a changing table. So it's <laughs> right. funny that that Matt Gates left it there. Um, are we sure that Matt did Matt Gates own up to leaving it there? I, I, I don't know, but it was his motion, his name on. Anyone could have left it there, uh, and it was from the fifteenth. He obviously didn't do it, but he's been saying every day, uh, you know, he's he's waving this around uh, rhetorically. And a motion to vacate is very brief. It simply says this motion, the chair, the of the Speaker of the House is hereby vacated. Wendy, it's it's very terse, um, and maybe a very terse uh, statement to where Kevin McCarthy might be headed. Yes, it it is. And he's the also the problem is that this has given his attempts to hold on to his job has given the Democrats a great talking point. Kevin McCarthy is more interested in his job than yours, dear voter. And so that, you know, ultimately there will be a battle over who gets blamed for the shutdown. But right now it's, you know, the Republicans look like they're going to take the blame for it. Wendy, does Wall Street care? Government shutdowns used to I, used to spark fears of market reaction, dysfunctional government. That certainly happened with the fight over the debt limit. Um, are investors sort of just inured to this now? Well, inured to a shutdown if everything else was okay, then yes. The shutdown really does, and government shutdowns don't really move the markets that much because government spending, they know it's going to come back at some point. But when you combine a shutdown with the full effect of the interest rate hikes hitting next month, the student loan repayments coming due or resuming next month, and the price of energy, you put all that together and you're going to have some very, very nervous people up on Wall Street. Arthur, how important is Donald Trump to all of this? He has called for a shutdown. He's called for a confrontation. But to what extent are these five, six right-wing MAGA members responding directly to his demands? It's not entirely clear, though there were some key flips, uh, including by Marjorie Taylor Greene, right after he made a statement. I asked Jim Jordan, Judiciary Chair, what impact Trump has had, and he said it's a huge impact. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Kevin McCarthy ally, but after Donald Trump made that statement, you're right. She switched her vote on a key vote and an ally of Kevin McCarthy's. You wouldn't have expected to do that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. More to come right after the break. Back to Capitol Hill. We're going to talk about New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez indicted on felony charges for the second time. This one for bribery. So stay with us. The news roundup is just getting started. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. 
Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, gang, let's get back to the news roundup. And I do want to go back to Capitol Hill because reports just before we came on the air of new charges, new federal charges against New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez for bribery. I'm I'm frankly not sure what other charges you guys will help update, uh, what other charges he has coming to him from the feds. But I do know, Wendy, that this is the second time Bob Menendez has faced federal charges. He beat him the first time. What do we know? Well, he kind of beat them the first time. The trial ended in a mistrial. The jury was unable to reach a verdict in 2015 when he was indicted on bribery charges then. What happened this morning was another federal grand jury uh, indicted him on charges of corruption with uh, with a real estate developer and some other businessmen um, on on charges of bribery. I, you know, I haven't had time to read the whole indictment because I've been with you guys, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it is certainly, um, you know, not a good look. Um, it's not a good look politically. He is already facing one Democratic challenger. There's a Republican senator. In big picture nationally, New Jersey has a Democratic governor who would appoint a replacement. So if Menendez were convicted or left the Senate because of this, um, Phil Murphy, the governor, would probably um, replace him with another Democrat. Arthur, what do we know? So it's hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes to enrich businessmen from New Jersey and the Egyptian government. And speaking of bad look, the indictment shows pictures of a jacket with his name on it to Senator Menendez with stacks of cash that were in envelopes. That investigators found in the jacket. In the jacket itself. Yeah. There was also mention, at least in early sort of run-up press reports, about gold bars. Is that is that part of – do we know if that's part of the indictment right now? I, I know we're just getting a first look I, at I it. I didn't see a picture of that yet. <laughs> okay. But I, I, you wonder also, is there a, a sack, a bulging sack with a dollar sign on it? <laughs> it doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. And, and just to reiterate, this this is the second time Bob Menendez has faced federal charges. As Wendy said, he had a mistrial the first time. Um, sometimes the feds decide they're going to get their guy and they come back for a second bite if if he uh, if he gets away. I can't say for sure that's the case this time. But well, th- well, th- this is different charges. Yeah, this is sure. entirely new. Well, it would charges. have to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same sort of crime, but. Yeah, same sort of crime, corruption both times. All right, Bob Menendez facing charges again. He beat him the first time, albeit through a mistrial, and we'll be sticking on that story for sure here on 1A. Let's move to uh, to the southern border next because there was a dip uh, in illegal crossings following policy changes in May from the Biden administration, but no more. This week, um, the Biden administration is under fire for what's happening in Eagle Pass, Texas, and there are pictures, video pictures, a lot 
That's where as many as 9,000 migrants have arrived this week, according to the AP. The city's mayor declared a state of emergency, and federal authorities assigned border officials to deal with the influx. Um, Wendy, what's what's behind the latest uptick? For a long time, border crossings were down, and now they're just absolutely surging. They are absolutely surging. And if you ask a Republican, they would say it's because of the Department of Homeland Security this week said that half a million Venezuelans who are already in the country would be allowed to apply for work authorization. And the president did that, or the administration, I should say, did that in an effort to ease the costs on the Democratic cities that are now inundated with these migrants who have come up there either on their own or through the you know movement of them from governors in Texas and Florida. I will say this is to ease the concerns on Democratic mayors. Cities like Eagle Pass do not have the infrastructure or the resources of um, you know New York or Chicago or Democratic cities like that, and they're way down on the border. They've been suffering a very long time, so it should ease you know some concerns for all of them, for all of those cities. But it is um, it is not a great political place for Biden to be right now um, from either side. You have Democratic mayors and governors screaming about all these migrants that are suddenly in their neighborhood and they don't know what to do with them. Um, And then you have uh, Republicans saying, we're not passing a spending bill, to go back to our original subject, without some anti-immigration measures. Um, Chaos at the border is certainly a political winner for Republicans. Arthur, what options does Joe Biden really have at this point with a Congress that's completely intractable and, and dysfunctional? Congress, well, there's not going to be immigration policy in this Congress. Republicans are dug in on border enforcement that can't get through the Senate, that doesn't even have the support of everyone in their own party. And And to be clear, Republicans like the images coming from the southern border. I hate to say it, but those are very politically helpful. Every day they point to these pictures as failure of Joe Biden to to secure the border. And it's even one of the reasons that they've proposed impeaching him, though that, that hasn't got critical mass. I mean, big picture, the fundamental story is that people are leaving poverty and, and instability in other countries and coming here. And there's there's different reasons for why we see a surge now uh, that, that experts have given. One is people were just waiting longer in Mexico. So uh, because there had been the, the end of our Title 42 policy in the beginning of what the Biden administration claimed were more, you know, more severe restrictions. Uh, and other other experts say it's cartels. Cartels are lying and telling people that they'll have an easier time getting protected status here. So, um, Speaking of a government shutdown, we heard from Hank, who has a good question, Eva. I'll, I'll let you take this one if you want. Do government employees in a government shutdown, do government employees get paid? Do Senate and Congress employees get paid? Do senators themselves get paid? And I will add, do federal investigations like – let's say, the special counsel that rely on money from Congress. Do those have to stop? So some of my colleagues may have to jump in here. I know that there is a delineation between essential and non-essential workers. Yeah. Everyone is required. The, the non-essential are furloughed, and then they receive back pay when they return to work. The essential workers, like TSA agents, for instance, and air traffic controllers, they have to continue working without pay um, and then receive back pay when the government shutdown ends. So it's kind of a, a hodgepodge. It's a huge inconvenience. It's a total mess. But I'm not sure about 
some of those other categories. I, so I'm going to let my colleagues I, yeah. jump in. Hey, you nailed it. It's it's essential, non-essential. Members of Congress get paid. That's why you see them saying, "Well, no, you know, no budget, no pay," and they pretend that they're going to punch themselves in the face, but they never do. Uh, Jack Smith, special counsel, that continues. Oh, you can't interrupt a criminal investigation by having a government shutdown. My understanding is that 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 specifically continues that, and that in general. Most of the stuff the government actually does is considered essential. You know, social security, criminal law enforcement, that stuff keeps going. And I will add, um, nerd alert, former congressional reporter here, congresspersons and senators do get paid. It's in the Constitution. Their their pay cannot be interrupted in the middle of a Congress. If you want to change their pay in any way, it has to be between Congresses. It's in the Constitution. I guess they – That's they, nerdy, they, man. Yeah. Well, they put that in there to protect from just this type of situation. Thanks, Founding Fathers. Let's move to Mar-a-Lago because there was major news. Every week there's major news out of the special counsel and Fulton County criminal investigations of Donald Trump and his alleged co-conspirators. But remember all of those photos um, of the boxes and f- uh, files stacked up around Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago in the ballroom, in the bathroom, in the storage closet? Well, Trump told one of his former aides – to just forget about those boxes. Her name is Molly Michael. She worked as an assistant to Donald Trump during and after his presidency. And according to new reporting from ABC out this week, she told investigators that Trump said to her, quote, Molly, you don't know anything about the boxes. He said this to her when he learned that she was about to talk to federal investigators. Molly, you don't know anything about the boxes. Well, Molly Michael most definitely did know about the boxes because she is Eva, employee two in the Mar-a-Lago indictment. She knows all about the boxes, right? It appears so. And this is the kind of mafia talk that the former president has been routinely accused of employing. You know, wink, wink, nod, nod. You don't know anything about the boxes. Just to remind folks, he stands accused of illegally holding dozens of highly sensitive national security records after leaving office conspiring with aides at his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida to obstruct the government's attempt to get those documents back. You know, Molly Michael, she is one of at least two witnesses that could be called to testify at a potential trial in the documents case. And I think as we get more of this drip, drip, drip of information, it becomes harder and harder for the former president to make this argument that this is all a witch hunt and there is nothing there. Because increasingly what we're seeing from the government is them producing witnesses and then producing evidence. Well, Eva, that trial, by the way, uh, nerd alert, you said that Trump is charged with mishandling classified documents. True. He's charged essentially with an obstructive cover up moving the boxes around. That's true. And now he's also charged with covering up the cover up. Don't forget about the superseding indictment. Let's go and delete the surveillance footage, the footage of moving the boxes around, which in a way is the cover up of the cover up. I just I just had to add add that in there. But Eva, we have right now a May date for the Mar-a-Lago trial. You talked about the drip drip of news that's going to come out during election time. Do we know if the May date is going to stick and how does that play into the dynamic of Trump's indictments in the election that you're talking about? So it's unclear if it will because we know these legal proceedings, they routinely move. But what I can say from speaking to voters out on the campaign trail is that the Republicans I speak to, especially in these early states, they seem only more inclined to support him uh, given all of this drama. So 
you know, logic, I think many people would think, well, this is a political liability, but Trump has successfully convinced a significant portion of the Republican electorate that that this is all political hmm. and that he often says that he is standing, that they're really coming for them and that he is standing in the way of the deep state, the institutions in this country attacking conservatives. One of the important, so, I'm, I'm sorry, Eva, but one of the important dynamics, Arthur, of impeachment, the impending Biden impeachment that I've been noticing is the importance of sort of equalizing this idea of corruption, right? Eva is talking about the idea um, of Donald Trump perhaps not being able to convince a broad swath of voters that this isn't about corruption, this is just about a witch hunt. And the effort in Congress does a lot of work to say, eh, you know, both guys are corrupt, actually. Just kind of throw smoke around that important issue that Eva's talking about. Trump's getting tons of help, including from his opponents in the Republican primary who don't criticize him for alleged crimes he has committed, which, you know, they could if they felt like trying to win. And in Congress, the impeachment inquiry that they've launched is so far just a bizarro version of the impeachment of Donald Trump in 2019. They're just running it in reverse. It's about Ukraine and whether Joe Biden took a bribe when he was vice president. Now, this is in early stages, and there are skeptics of it among Republicans in the House. And we don't know. I don't know if they'll actually get all the way to doing the impeachment. You, You see what's happening with just trying to fund the government and keep it open. But this is, but you're completely right that the idea is it creates a, a a parallel or at least it allows Republicans to say well every you know this is the same thing that's happening on both sides. Um speaking of Donald Trump's co-conspirators Wendy, we had Rudy Giuliani news this week. We get Rudy news every week. Some of the Rudy news this week is that his own lawyer is suing him, I think for 1.36 million dollars for unpaid legal fees. And this is the, the, the woes for Rudy are just stacking up. Poor guy. The woes for, for Rudy really are stacking up. And every time we have an anniversary of 9-11, there's that image of Rudy Giuliani way back then, you know, walking the streets with Hillary Clinton to the sort of figure he is now. But yes, he, even though Donald Trump threw a $100,000 per person fundraiser for Giuliani at Mar-a-Lago, um, Giuliani has still paid, I think, only $250,000 in change to his lawyers of that $1.5 million bill. And like lawyers anywhere, they want to be paid. And Giuliani may find himself needing new lawyers um, because he is charged with a number of things uh, related to the Georgia Attempt, the attempts in Georgia to overturn the 2020 election. Criminal charges in Georgia, defamation, civil suits from more than one location, and an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal coup case. That's just off the top of my head. We could sit here for an hour and talk about the things that are costing Rudy Giuliani money right now. Um, Arthur, we learned last week, Hunter Biden, he's being charged for the gun violation and two counts of lying on federal records, but Hunter Biden going a bit on offense and suing the IRS. He's got really aggressive lawyers, and the case against the IRS is – he says that they released confidential tax information of his, which they did through whistleblowers who went to Congress. Congress actually has the power to make public private tax information that's generally protected by criminal penalties. Hunter Biden said they've been talking out of turn and going outside the bounds of what Congress is allowed to do. Well, Hunter Biden has a powerful lawyer, Abby Lowell. You've probably heard of him. And 
that's probably a big part of the reason why Hunter Biden is going on offense, too. We'll be hearing a lot more about that story. We're going to head to a quick break. But before we do, bargain hunters, are you looking for a great deal this weekend? Well, a rare piece of art is up for sale from Bob Ross. The piece is titled A Walk in the Woods. It was the very first painting that Bob Ross created in 1983 on his iconic TV series, The Joy of Painting. You remember it, Happy Clouds. According to the auction listing, the piece was used during the first episode to, quote, set the expectations for what is to come in the show and his art. Now, the price? Just under $10 million. What would Bob think? (laughs) Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One VentureX business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the VentureX business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The VentureX business card. What's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. NPR Plus is a new way to support public media and get more from your favorite NPR podcasts like Fresh Air. Sometimes I'll actually preface the question with, if it makes you too uncomfortable to talk about, if it's too personal, just tell me. Here's the question. For behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, and more, sign up at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to the roundup. All right. President John F. Kennedy, he created the Peace Corps, of course. Bill Clinton gets credit for AmeriCorps. And as of this week, President Joe Biden can claim credit for the newly established Climate Corps. The paid workforce program, it's a training program. It'll prepare 20,000 young people for roles combating climate change, things like installing solar panels and more. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York, celebrated this announcement. The day has arrived. It is an incredibly historic day and an incredibly historic milestone, not just for the climate movement in the United States, but for organizing movements and people's movements here across the country. On Monday, AOC and Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts reintroduced a bill to create a similar Climate Corps program. It was unlikely to pass in this Republican-controlled House. So, Arthur, where did the idea for Climate Corps originate? What's the benefit here? Well, first off, this was an idea that Democrats in Congress wanted to include in the bills that they were passing earlier in the Biden administration. It got stripped out. Joe Manchin didn't like it. And the idea here is that this is like the Civilian Conservation Corps that FDR created during the Great Depression. That employed 3 million people, was a big deal, uh, created uh, uh, trails and, and shelters in public parks that people still use today. This is you know twenty thousand training twenty thousand people very small by comparison but but potentially symbolic it's got AOC and other uh, leading progressive Democrats touting it and and it's likely an effort to help 
shore up Biden among younger voters. Well, Eva, let's talk about that shoring up of Biden with younger voters because the Climate Corps clearly is geared toward that. How important is action on climate change for those voters? And and what are they saying about their excitement or lack thereof for this White House right now? It frequently comes up as an issue when you speak to young progressives, what this administration is doing when it comes to climate. And this is something that they've advocated for for a long time. We're talking about thousands of people being put into uh, programs that can train them to deploy clean energy and just a a wide range of, of jobs. So it's important. I have routinely heard that if it's a choice when I speak to young people between Trump and Biden, they're voting for President Biden. But there isn't that excitement. Um, There isn't that excitement to support this president because this president is viewed by many on the left as a moderate, Hmm. um, despite some of these progressive wins. So that makes advancing the climate core all the more important. And and Wendy... This dynamic that Eve is describing, even if it's all more important to excite younger voters, I'm wondering if those same younger voters will be just the same turned off by all of the oil drilling projects and leases that the Biden White House has greenlit and the fact that the U.S. is is pumping away uh, the world's leader in oil production. Yes, I think that is dragging down the president's um, uh, support among younger voters. There is that, that he, the Climate Corps, which could be very good and it will train 20,000 young people in jobs that will be important as the climate changes. But the 20-somethings feel like this is these things are performative. What they want to see is progress in making the planet livable for them when they're our age, or my age. And they, um, they very much want to see reduction in drilling. They don't want to see things like the Willow um, drilling project in Alaska go forward. And they they don't want to be saddled with student loans, for example. So this is a, a swing and, you know, it might work. It might not. They, they probably wouldn't mind if Joe Biden legalized weed, too. Yeah, there's that. He's not, which like it's not happening. Yeah, which is not a joke. I mean, that would excite a lot of younger voters. And Chuck Schumer has had a bill for years now to try to do to try to try do the same. I think he understands the politics here. There is an effort by the Biden administration to reschedule it, but it's, it's no idea where it's going. Yeah. Let's turn now to New Mexico. Uh, last week, New Mexico's Democratic governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, scaled back her attempt to restrict firearms in the Albuquerque metro area. She originally banned people from open and concealed carry firearms in public areas or on state property. Now the ban only applies to parks and playgrounds. That ban had faced a spate of legal challenges, Second Amendment challenges after it was first issued. Very controversial. Arthur, why did the governor reduce the scope of this thing so drastically and quickly? Was it just about the legal challenges? I think it's a combination of the legal challenges and she's getting yelled at by everybody. And uh, it's it comes at a time where gun laws are going in the opposite direction because of the Supreme Court. And Eva, in, in terms of violence in Albuquerque, I don't know how many specifics we have, but it was seen widely as a rather drastic move, declaring an emergency on firearms and trying to ban their carry, which was bound. I mean, as soon as the governor announced it, it was bound to run into legal challenges, not to mention uh, partisan politics. Uh, what do we know about why the governor did this and then reversed and just sort of the overall dynamic of this of this remarkable story? Well, to me, it seemed like an act of desperation 
There were several recent fatal shootings of children, including an 11-year-old boy who was killed outside a minor league baseball stadium in Albuquerque. And so it, it seemed like she just felt like she had to act. But what was remarkable was not only the partisan stuff, but the pushback that she also got from Democrats that said, you know, listen, you are, you are pushing the bounds of your authority. And so that is why we saw her scale back here. And at this point, the temporary restraining order uh, will remain in place until a, a hearing early next month. And I'm curious to see, you know, what else she has up her sleeve, what else she tries to do in effort to curb this gun violence. Well, on another public safety note, the Biden administration announced that the free COVID test program is going to restart on Monday. You remember that. You could send away and get free COVID tests delivered to your house. This move comes as several Omicron subvariants of the coronavirus are causing a major uptick in hospitalizations and infections. Nobody actually knows how many infections because nobody's testing anymore. They're testing sewage for sort of broad measures of the amount of COVID that's kind of out there. But in terms of us knowing when we're, when we're infected, when we're actually positive, when it's time to stay home, very few people are doing that. So uh, we talked about uh, the COVID summer surge on 1A last month. And here's what virologist Angie Rasmussen had to say about the spread back then. EG5, I think what people really need to keep in mind about it and all of the XBB alphabet super variants that came before it and are still circulating, by the way, are all derivatives of Omicron. So they are all still effectively Omicron. Um, given that they are uh, Omicron essentially with, with additional changes, um, usually changes in the spike protein that can make them uh, a little bit better at infecting people who've been previously infected or vaccinated, um, doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have other properties that are very different from the other Omicron variants. And specifically, there's no data that I'm aware of that suggests that EG5 is more pathogenic or causes more severe disease than any of the Omicron variants that have come before it. Again, starting Monday, the government will mail you four free COVID tests, a return to that program. You can request those tests at covidtest.gov. All right, let's go to the UAW, United Auto Workers, strike because there's been news out of the UAW strike. UAW International Union President Sean Fain just gave a major update on the strike uh, during a Facebook Live at 10 o'clock this morning. Today at noon Eastern time, all of the parts distribution facilities at General Motors and Stellantis are being called to stand up and strike. We will be striking 38 locations across 20 states, across all nine regions of the UAW. More than 12,000 UAW workers have been striking against Detroit's big three. That's General Motors, Stellantis, which owns Chrysler and Ford for over a week. It's the first coordinated action against all three companies. At the same time, strikers are seeking a 40 percent pay increase over four years, a restoration of pensions for all workers and a 32 hour work week, among other demands. And there's a lot of politics here too. Donald Trump headed, he says, to speak to the strikers next week and politics among Democrats, too, about how to handle the UAW. You're listening to 1A. I'm Todd Zwillick. 
So, Wendy, so far workers have been striking at a handful of plants. You just heard from there uh, from the UAW president, from uh, Sean Fain, there a, a significant expansion. Um, how significant um, is this expansion, do you think, in terms of the, the impact of the strike? I, I think it, it exponentially increases the strike. He he was um, had a very interesting tactic with this to start the strike at three plants that make popular but not super popular uh, cars and trucks, and uh, then you know dared the car manufacturers to come and make some progress. He did say in this live stream that there had been some real progress in negotiations, including eliminating a lower wage tier and additional job security, but apparently not enough to stop this action. Essentially, he said, I'm going to make it hurt a little. If you don't give us what we want, I'm going to make it hurt a lot. We don't know the full list of these plants, but his warning before was that now he's going to go after the plants that make the Ford F-150, you know, the most popular pickup mm. truck in, in the world or the country. And um, so he is, you know, he's going to make it hurt for the manufacturers. And frankly, this is not great news for President Biden either, who, you know, is trying to be Union Joe, got stood up by Donald Trump, who planning to skip the debate and go to the um, and talk to United Auto Workers next Wednesday night. And Biden is sort of left with, you know, another economic problem on his plate. Uh, Arthur, Arthur, Wendy puts her finger on it. The the um, triangulation of Union Joe, the, the competition for the white working class, not that all other workers are white. They're not. But that's the that's the shorthand we use for the, the competition to uh, capitalize on blue collar voters in the election. And Donald Trump says he's rushing to the to the UAW. Right. And the politics of this is a little mixed up because it's not just about siding with workers. It's also questions about green energy and uh, you know alleged favoritism for for automakers that make electric vehicles. Uh, I asked Debbie Dingell, uh, a Democrat from Michigan yesterday, if Joe Biden should go to Detroit to make a show of support for the workers. And she said, no. Hmm. She said he should stay out of it. And uh, I was surprised by that answer. She said part of the reason was uh, Joe Biden's intervention on the side of rail companies when he asked Congress to intervene earlier this year or at the end of last year before rail workers were about to go on strike. Congress quashed that. Extraordinary from Michigan Congressman Debbie Dingell. Stay away, President Biden. I didn't expect to hear that. I didn't either. And uh, she didn't want to elaborate on it too much, but she said it's just not his place, even though historically hmm. presidents have always gotten involved yeah. in, in, in labor disputes. Especially Union Joe. It's in the name. Well, that's a congresswoman who knows her district, so something to pay attention to. All right. Before we go for this week, I do want to make sure we touch on Rupert Murdoch. He says he's stepping down from his chairmanship of the Fox Media Empire. This, the real-life succession, it's on now, and the, the memes have been fantastic. Um, but if you watch succession, you seem to – understand that the fight for this company among the children is just not far away. But here in real life, Wendy, the legacy of Rupert Murdoch, it's one of overwhelming financial success, um, but also at the expense of the truth. Yes, I, you know, right. This really is the TV show succession come to life. <laughs> um, there are now four children, four offspring, just like in the show, who now have to sort out who is going to run the company. Um, the the leading figure, the Kendall, if you will, is Lachlan Murdoch. Um, he was a big supporter of Tucker Carlson, to your point. Um, uh, you know, until the Dominion lawsuit, he was also in the forefront of ousting Tucker Carlson after Dominion voting systems won its lawsuit for false reporting. Um, then there is the brother James, who is more moderate. Um, 
and uh, you know, but uh, probably is not going to end up running the company. So um, there's there's a lot of you know art art becoming life here and life imitating art. Arthur, $787 million to remind people the value of that defamation settlement for lying to their viewers for money. Right. And they're still facing more defamation cases, including from uh, one of the January 6th rioters named Ray Epps, who Tucker Carlson said over and over and Republican lawmakers said was secretly a Fed. I, I don't follow succession, <laughs> but I think it's important for people who are who do follow media generally to know that Fox losing that case was a big deal and the company could potentially be at a crossroads you know, under new management. And there's and there's more to come. It's not the last defamation case that they're facing. No. More to come uh, that will add to the legacy of Rupert Murdoch as he steps down to this overly appropriate music. My thanks go to CNN's Eva McKend. From Bloomberg News, Wendy Benjaminson and Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. We're going to head to a quick break here, but we'll return with the global edition of the News Roundup. We'll talk more about President Zelensky's visit to the U.S., What's going on between India and Canada and a controversial prisoner swap with Iran? All that and more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. It's time for the Global Edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. This week, news from the United Nations General Assembly, a landmark prisoner swap, and... What's going on between India and Canada? All that and so much more with our panel of experts today. David Rennie is the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. David, good to talk to you again. Hello. And Nancy Youssef is here, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. As always, Nancy, great to talk to you. Great to be with you. And Jack Detch is here with me in the studio, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Jack, welcome. Happy Friday, Todd. Well, as I said, it was the, the biggest week at the United Nations uh, for, that, for their calendar of the whole year. The UN General Assembly, more than 140 leaders and state representatives from around the world gathered in New York to address the 78th session of the UN General Assembly. The high-level week consisted of several days of speeches from world leaders, also closed-door meetings, and heads of state laying out their priorities for the coming year, urging cooperation on pressing issues and sometimes just plain old, plain speaking. Our world is becoming unhinged. Geopolitical tensions are rising. Global challenges are mounting. 
and we seem incapable of coming together to respond. For the first time in years, U.S. President Joe Biden was the only leader from the five powerful veto-wielding nations on the U.N. Security Council to attend in person. So, Jack, who wasn't there and how much does that matter that there were so many no-shows? Yeah, Todd, almost the entire membership of the United Nations National Security Council couldn't couldn't make it. Uh, this was Xi Jinping skipping out for the second straight year after he's fired his defense minister, uh, the head of the rocket forces of, of the PLA, uh, and his top diplomat, uh, Emmanuel Macron, not making it. Rishi Sunak, the British prime minister, not making it uh, after getting into hot water back home over his U-turn on climate policies. And Vladimir Putin, of course, has an arrest warrant out for him from the ICC. So that would probably be an awkward conversation at JFK Customs, to say the least, for him. Uh it's a missed opportunity, obviously, for Xi and Biden uh, to get to brass tacks in terms of a meeting later this year. There's hopes they could still do that uh, at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Uh, and almost 80 years after the UN was founded, after the end of World War II, it just shows the UN's not as clearly relevant. It's failed to stop the war in Ukraine. It's failed to tackle global poverty objectives, gender equality objectives. Uh, and when you look at the way the world is shaped this year, it's going multilateral. If you want something done, you go to the G7, the G20, the BRICS. You don't go to the UN. So waning influence perhaps at the UN, David, uh, Rishi Sunak of the UK was the first British prime minister to skip the UN General Assembly in a decade. Now, officially, that was due to a busy schedule, but we all know that you make time when you're a world leader if you need to make time. He did make waves this week, angering environmental groups with a hard turn on climate policy, though, announcing a, quote, proportionate approach to climate policy. Uh, what are some of the shifts that, that he announced and why are so many people in the UK up in arms around this word, proportionate? So I think that there is a giant gap between the work that a country like the UK needs to do for the global problem of climate change and what is essentially domestic electoral politics, because Rishi Sunak is way behind in the opinion polls. Uh, remember, the Tories have had several different leaders, all of whom become prime ministers uh, in turn. So he's never actually won office in his own right. He's 20 points behind the opposition Labour Party. And they had a by-election a few months ago in a suburb of London where one of the issues that seemed to swing it for the Conservatives was taking a hard line on behalf of motorists against a new tax, basically a daily charge for old cars that might have polluted exhaust pipes. And this seems to have put wind behind the far right or the, you know, the right of the Conservative Party, who already think that there's too many expensive promises being made uh, to try and tackle climate change. And so we've seen Rishi Sunak come out and actually shock not just public opinion, but also big business with some pretty big reversals. So he has put an extra five years on the time frame where uh, uh, Britain had been about to ban any new sales of gas-powered or diesel-powered cars in 2030. He's now moved that back by five years. A whole bunch of other things to do with the boilers that people use to heat their homes, basically saying that it's been too expensive and too bossy, and he's not going to do that to voters, clearly mm. trying for a kind of populist argument ahead of the elections. What's fascinating is, as you say, public opinion has been very divided, somewhat predictably environmental groups condemning him, but also some pretty big companies, including Ford Motor Company, saying, you know, we were ready for a deadline of 2030. You can't just kind of out of the blue keep moving these things and expect us to know how to invest. These are very, very large decisions. And so there is a sense that some of these ambitions, are not just an environmental row, but there is a sense that domestic British politics is making the UK 
unpredictable for big business. And I, and I wanted to ask about domestic politics. Just just in a in a quick minute here, David, elections in 2025, you just mentioned it. We watched conservatives go through fits and starts. Uh, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, just a mess on the conservative side, and yet they retain power. Just where is the center of gravity in British politics right now with the election coming in 2025? It's a very strange moment because if you look at the polls, the, La- the Labour Party is 20 points ahead, but you can see they're nervous. So even if you look at these environmental moves, what did we see? We saw the Labour Party actually saying that this, you know, one of the changes which was, uh, you know, on forcing people to ex- fit expensive new ways of heating their homes, they're actually not going to promise to reverse that conservative mood. So there is a populist moment. The British economy is not in great shape. Brexit is still wreaking havoc in the British economy. Uh, although it's not really a topic that any politician wants to touch because it's so divisive. So there is a sense that, you know, that's why we're seeing Rishi Sunak trying these populist announcements about, you know, I'm on the side of the hard-pressed motorist because, as in the States, a lot of people worried about the cost of living, worried about, you know, all sorts of, a sense that the country is not in great shape. So it's a scratchy populist moment in British politics. All right, quick check-in on the scratchy populist moment in the UK right there. But back in New York at the UN... Ukraine and President Volodymyr Zelensky were clearly the highest profile issues and personalities at the UN General Assembly. Poland's President Duda met with journalists on the sidelines of the UN. Listen. It's like we are dealing with a drowning person. Anyone who has experienced a drowning person knows that he is extremely dangerous because he can pull you to the depths. Uh, Nancy, just a stark assessment from Duda there, Ukraine as a drowning person that can pull you down if you try to help. What's that about? Indeed, from Poland of all countries, which has been one of the most um, strongest supporters of of Ukraine. It's taken in more than a million refugees, among the first to provide um, MiGs and other defense systems. Um, To start, there's just a little bit of background in that um, earlier this year, there was a ban on um, uh, grain, and that part of that was to kind of uh, keep costs down. And so the EU announced last week that it would suspend that ban, and Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia said that they would defy it because they had concern about the prices for their own farmers. And so um, Zelensky goes to the UN and says that anybody who opposed Ukrainian grain was working on Russia's behalf. And all of a sudden, um, Poland took a very different tone. And so you heard those comments from Duda. We heard from the prime minister the following day that the, Poland would no longer provide weapons, having provided so much up until uh, this point of the war. Subsequently, we've seen them pull some of that back and say no new weapons and try to do a reset. This is all against the backdrop of domestic politics in Poland, where um, Ukraine is one of the main issues. They on October fifteenth, the parliament will there'll be a parliamentary election, and Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party are in the fight of their political life. And so, um, I think this was an attempt um, by that party to speak up on behalf of a key constituency: rural voters, farmers who have been affected by changes in, in, in grain prices. But it's a risky political strategy, one could argue, because Poland's approach to Ukraine has been the one of the biggest foreign policy successes um, of the ruling party. And so we saw this sort of um, very aggressive position forward, um, as outlined by Duda's statements, and then an attempt to pull it back. Mm. Whether it's effective, whether they're able to gain more voters, we'll, we'll see. But we, we saw the opposition party um, raising 
discussing this as well and saying, look, Ukraine has taken advantage of Poland. The fact that they would um, hurt our farmers is something we shouldn't allow. And and the Law and Justice Party really trying to thread this very fine line between supporting farmers and and defending uh, their their foreign policy amid criticism from Zelensky on uh, at the United Nations. Well, let's make sure we hear from Zelensky himself at the UN. Evil cannot be trusted. Ask Prigozhin if one bets on Putin's promises. Please hear me. Let unity decide everything openly. While Russia is pushing the world to the final war, Ukraine is doing everything to ensure that after Russian aggression, no one in the world will dare to attack any nation. Weaponization must be restrained. War crimes must be punished. Deported people must come back home and the occupier must return to their own land. Jack uh, Zelensky there making the stakes clear. Yeah, I mean, what would Miley Cyrus say? He came in like a wrecking ball. He he (laughs) called out Russia for weaponizing the grain supply on the Black Sea. He called out Russia for weaponizing the largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. Uh, It really turns the questions on the audience. What are you going to do about it? Implicitly questioned the utility of the Security Council and said these decisions can't be made behind closed doors by great powers anymore. Uh, So – This is Zelensky really calling to expand the global diplomatic playing field. We're going to continue to talk about the war in Ukraine, about Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the United States and to the U.S. Congress, where funding for the Ukraine war really is on the bubble. I want to stick with Ukraine, gang, because um, Volodymyr Zelensky, of course, was at the U.N. and then in Washington for high-profile meetings, really making the plea for continued U.S. support. He met with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon, Nancy, lawmakers um, at the Capitol, and President Biden also at the White House. So all of these high-profile meetings, Zelensky really making the point to be seen out in public with the most powerful people in America on camera. Um, What came of all these meetings? What did Zelensky walk away with? Well, a couple things. I think politically he was trying to shore up more support, particularly as we've seen uh, a growing uh, divide amongst the Republican Party about whether to continue to provide weapons to Ukraine and for how long. And I think a lot of people's positions were calcified when he arrived here, whether he was able to change hearts and minds. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We haven't seen it yet on the Hill. And he was trying to secure more weapons. Officially, they announced an additional $325 million um, in military aid, including more for air defenses. What wasn't announced, the sort of uh, weapon system elephant in the room, if you will, was ATACMS. Um, and we're starting to get reports that there was an agreement on that. This is a, what, a missile that the Ukrainians have been seeking really since the early days of the war. And there's a growing feeling that it's not if the United States will provide them, but when. Nancy, we've, um, seen, we've seen a lot of that dynamic. At every turn, I, I think I'm not the only one who's noticed over the last you know, since the war started, American reluctance to to provide X weapon or Y weapon or X plane or Y plane uh, to, to stall for a few weeks or months and then eventually relent. Is this more of the same? 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it appears that way, doesn't it? I mean, that dynamic you talk about goes all the way back to the Stingers in the very first weeks of the war that the Ukrainians sort of publicly asked for it. The United States um, has some concerns. In the case of, for example, tanks, we saw the Europeans announce that they were willing to provide tanks and then the U.S. did it. It's hard to know the dynamics specifically at play in this case because they've been so opaque. But I think there's some element of that. We heard that from Zelensky himself in the interviews given in recent weeks where he wanted them by the autumn, that he thought he might get them, that often weapons arrive later than they could use them. I just can't speak to specifically what's happening. And there yeah. are certainly um, a pattern that you you rightly identify. Can I tell you for sure that that's what's happened here? For uh, An alternative would be, for example, that they've been working on uh, intelligence together on how to best use them, that that's part of the delay, that there's an element of surprise that they're trying to um, create with the Russians such that they don't announce things ahead of time. I just don't know in this particular case, but you're right to point out the pattern that the U.S. fear of escalation, the Ukrainians have said consistently, has put weapons in their hands later than they would have wanted, and they would say potentially change sort of the trajectory of the war and what they would have been able to achieve had they had those systems and weapons sooner. Well, ATACMS, the missiles that Nancy is describing, can hit targets up to 300 kilometers away. That's 190 miles. So you can see just from that piece of information the tactical and probably strategic advantage of having uh, weapons that can hit targets that far away. Uh, Zelensky left his meeting yesterday with President Biden in the White House, in the Oval Office, with the promise of an additional $128 million in security assistance, plus nearly $200 million more for weapons and equipment. Here's the president. Today, I approve the next tranche of U.S. security assistance to Ukraine, including more artillery, more ammunition, more anti-tank weapons. And next week, the first U.S. Abrams tanks will be delivered to Ukraine. We also focused on strengthening Ukraine's air defense capabilities. Uh, Jack, then uh, Zelensky was on the Hill where funding for the Ukraine war effort is very much on the bubble. It's all tied in with government shutdown fights. Um, a lot of detail that maybe we don't have time to get into here. But one thing that was remarkable to me is that the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, while he did meet with Zelensky, very notably and very specifically was not seen in public with him, would not be photographed with the president of Ukraine in the middle of a war. And I, and I thought that was remarkable. What's the dynamic going on here? Yeah, McCarthy really did not give Zelensky the star treatment on Capitol Hill that we saw uh, under a Democratic-led Congress, of course, last fall uh, when Zelensky got to address a joint session of Congress. So you see McCarthy trying to manage his caucus. Of course, the, the far right of the caucus allowed him to be speaker. Uh, now he's, he's having to cut a lot of sweetheart deals with them. Of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, uh, the Matt Gateses of the world, uh, very anti-delivering more support to Ukraine. Now McCarthy apparently behind the scenes a, a little bit more supportive. But this is going to get caught up in this game of caucus politics. Now, on the other hand, you have a Republican foreign policy establishment that litters the Hill as well, the Mitch McConnells of the world, Mike McCall on, on House Foreign Foreign Affairs, uh, of course, Mike Rogers on, on uh, House Armed Services. These are people that are very supportive of Ukraine. So there's going to be a lot of backlash if McCarthy does eventually decide he's not given more aid. Ukraine in need of more aid of Volodymyr Zelensky, according to CNN, said to senators in a closed door meeting, you give money, we give lives. 
once again raising the stakes just as he did at the UN General, General Assembly in his meetings with senators and member of Congress, members of Congress who control the vital purse strings for part of Ukraine's war effort against Russia's invasion. Let's move now north of the border, though, to Canada. A remarkable story out of Canada this week when the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood up in Parliament and said that Canada has evidence that Indian agents played a role in the killing of a Sikh activist. Uh, Canada and India have now expelled each other's diplomats over the row. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke on Monday in the Parliament. Here it is. Over the past number of weeks... Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Canada has declared its deep concerns to the top intelligence and security officials of the Indian government. Last week at the G20, I brought them personally and directly to Prime Minister Modi in no uncertain terms. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. Uh, David Rennie, it's a stark and unmissable thing for the Prime Minister of Canada to get up on the floor in Parliament and state in no uncertain terms that we have evidence that India had a hand in killing a Canadian citizen. Who is Hardeep Singh Najjar? So he's he was a Canadian Sikh leader. Uh, he was the leader of a temple in a suburb of Vancouver, uh, which has a lot of Sikh residents. There's about uh, seven hundred and eighty thousand Sikhs living in Canada. So that's a you know it's a very large community. It also has a tremendous amount of political power in Canada. And I think the backdrop to this is that. You could assume that uh, Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, had no desire to go down this route. He had no desire to find his relations with India, which are already not in tremendously good shape, getting so much worse and starting to expel each other's intelligence agencies. And we know that he tried to deal with this more quietly because he sent uh, the head of his intelligence service and his national security advisor to India in recent weeks, we gather, to see if he could get the Indians to sort of give him some explanations or to try and do this quietly. But the fact that he's had to release this publicly and is now we're seeing more and more information coming out in the Canadian media about how Canadian intelligence and in fact, a friendly intelligence service from another country handed them evidence of communications between Indian officials discussing this killing of this Sikh leader who was basically shot dead sitting in his truck in a car park outside this temple in Vancouver. And it's a real catastrophe for India-Canada relations Mm -hmm. and a real embarrassment for countries like the United States, who, of course, understand that Narendra Modi's government is capable of all sorts of extremely uh, ugly acts uh, in the name of sort of nationalist ethnic politics. But India is an unbelievably important country, particularly as a hedge against the power of China. And so for a long time, you've seen many Western governments bending over backwards not to accuse the Modi government. And if the Modi government then took that as a green light to carry out an assassination on Canadian soil of a Canadian citizen, you can see why Justin Trudeau felt he had no choice in the end but to go public. Well, going public certainly couldn't have been choice A or B. It seems like plan D, Nancy, as as David just mentioned. But um, Hardeep Singh Najjar is an activist uh, from the Khalistan state. Well, he's Canadian, but uh, an activist for Khalistan, I, I guess, independence or autonomy, as far as I know. Can, can you help explain why Khalistan is such a sensitive topic 
in domestic Indian politics, why they would go after him? Sure. So this was sort of an idea that was born in the 1930s, but really took off in the 1980s, that Punjab, which is uh, a majority uh, Sikh population uh, in India, that it would be this a separatist movement, that it would create its own state. And as you've seen um, under Modi's um, tenure, that there has been... Um, not a welcoming environment for minority communities, including the Sikh community. And throughout um, India's history, there has been concern about um, the the Sikhism movement, and both not only internally but externally, where a lot of the diaspora have been working to promote this idea. And so I think they see it as potentially a threat to sovereignty, to the state itself, given the, the um, push that it's... Um, the, the movement that they have um, created, uh, particularly outside of the country. And so for all those reasons, we've seen that um, India's um, governments, India's intelligence service has paid particular attention to this movement, and which has been uh, around for decades. Um, Jack, David mentioned briefly the difficult position that the United States has put in between these two allies. Describe the difficulty here um, high-profile meetings between Modi and Biden just several weeks ago. So they're trying to make that relationship closer. Yeah, to use Nancy's term of art from earlier in the program, right, this is a major elephant in the room because you had the Biden administration for the past two years and even the Trump administration before them setting up India as this major counterweight to China, uh, joining the Quad, uh, the U.S. having sort of uh, an ability to have transshipment points in the Indian Andaman Islands. Uh, Now this sort of throws a lot of doubt on that question because the U.S. has basically come out and said – India is not getting a free pass for this this human rights abuse here, uh, this extrajudicial killing potentially, if indeed they are involved, uh, after Modi's human rights record has largely been swept under the rug by multiple U.S. administrations. So uh, this is going to be a, a real difficult challenge for the U.S. Uh, to figure out how to manage the India relationship if indeed uh, India is responsible and this investigation progresses to a criminal investigation. Um, David, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, said that Canada was investigating whether, quote, agents of New Delhi were behind the slayings of this Sikh activist. Um, He's talking about the Indian Research and Analysis Wing, also known as RAW, RAW to some people. What's known about how they operate? So they certainly uh, expanded a lot since they were born. They were carved out of the Domestic Intelligence Bureau uh, in the late 1960s. They actually had quite a lot of help early on being trained by the CIA. And, you know, traditionally, you saw them doing operations in Pakistan, India's great enemy, also trying to do some work in China. And so, you know, it has been accused of killings in the past, you know, Indian uh, sort of people suspected of Uh, fueling separatist movements in India have been killed uh, in places like Pakistan. And people understood that that was probably the the RAW doing this. I think it is an enormous change if it does turn out that there is credible evidence that the Indian intelligence service carried this killing out in Canada, close American ally, a member of the Five Eyes, that kind of group of trusted nations, America, Canada, Britain and others that really look after each other's backs. The idea that India, this as, as Jack and uh, Nancy say, you know, putative ally, although I think, frankly, it was never as close to America as some American analysis has said in recent years. But to be able to do that on Canadian soil, you know, there are some voices in the Indian 
commentariat in in India saying, oh, this is the kind of thing that Mossad does. You know, this is what kind of tough countries do, like the Israeli intelligence service. I fear, though, that for India's reputation, if it does get linked to their intelligence service, it's going to remind other people in other governments of Russia, which, of course, uses its intelligence service to carry out political assassinations in places like the UK. And that is a club that I don't think Narendra Modi would like to be in. But in Indian politics at the moment, there's absolute defiance. You're seeing the opposition Congress party rolling in basically behind the Modi government, saying that, you know, the fight against terrorism must be uncompromising because Indian public opinion on the whole is in a very nationalist state. And there is tremendous support for the idea that foreign governments, including Canada, have been way too tolerant of separatists, including Sikhs. Jack, um, David's describing a dynamic that's important here. I think we tell ourselves that democracies don't carry out killings overseas. I I think we can stipulate that's not true. Um, Of course they do. Of course this one has. Um, But we also tell ourselves that India is the world's largest democracy. It's an emerging democracy. So what does this episode do to that impression and, frankly, the billboard that India is advertising all over the world? Yeah, I think you sort of had the the U.S. kind of ignoring the sort of Hindu nationalist tilt that David describes that the Modi government had taken. What you saw was a very different tack from Jake Sullivan on the podium yesterday uh, at the National Security Council, basically saying the U.S. would abide by basic principles. They were going to provide the Canadians with support to the investigation. Uh, so it looks like maybe the U.S. isn't taking the Canadian side. They're sort of straddling the fence here, uh, but but certainly uh, they're supporting the Canadian ally and and the five ally here, as opposed to perhaps a more distant uh, non-ally, as David mentioned. Let's turn now to the latest out of Iran, where five Americans who were detained for years in Iran were freed on Monday. In a deal with the Iranian government, President Biden agreed to release $6 billion in Iranian assets that were frozen as part of U.S. sanctions against Iran. U.S. authorities also dropped charges against five Iranian nationals here in the United States. So, David, five Americans held in Iran. They faced different charges, but all of them were considered by the United States to be wrongfully detained. What do we know about the reason behind their imprisonment in the first place and and how it led to their release? Well, Iran says that they were spying for America. They were all uh, uh, American citizens, often dual nationals. Three of them, we know their names. Two of them, their families asked for them never to be named. Um, Mm. The sad truth is that Iran takes hostages. And that's what almost certainly what this was, that Iran has a habit of uh, allowing dual nationals into the country or giving visas to Westerners and then takes them hostage. And there are perhaps still a dozen Westerners and several dozen dual nationals still behind bars in Iran. And Iranian officials, not on the record, but in private, will say, including to colleagues of mine at The Economist, that they do this because they need some leverage, because they're sanctioned, uh, because they're trying to survive in a nasty world. And so they're pretty open that this is something they do to get stuff. And of course, as ever with these deals to get people released, you play the cheering of their families and it's a, a huge relief and and the end of a kind of disastrously horrible period for their families. But of course, there is always the concern that if you pay a ransom for a hostage, you've just raised the price on the next American uh, who will who will be taken. And I think it was no surprise that you saw the Secretary of State and other senior American officials saying in public to Americans, you know, we got these people home, but we 
strongly emphasize that Americans have absolutely no business setting foot in Iran because who knows if we can get the next ones out. And I think that is the concern is that this is basically uh, partly about trying to lower tensions with Iran because there are a whole bunch of geopolitical uh, sort of pieces on this chessboard in play. But Iran has basically secured the release of six billion dollars of its own oil revenues that have been sitting in South Korea that have now gone to yeah. a bank account. And, and let me ask let me ask David about that six billion because David, there's there's the the opposition to the. Oh, sorry, pardon me, Jack. Let me ask Jack. Uh, David, that was you, Jack. You're here in the studio um, about the deal. There's there's predictably a lot of criticism of this deal, the six billion dollars. A lot of criticism from the right that this is simply going to go toward. Iran being able to build uh, weapons or nuclear weapons. But what is this $6 billion? What are the rules around this deal? How can Iran spend it? What exactly did we agree to here? So this is $6 billion of Iran's funds that have been in South Korean banks that can now go back to Iran. Uh, what the U.S. tries to do with these types of funds is is siphon them through the Swiss, Swiss channel. Th- these are used uh, primarily for humanitarian purposes, uh, primarily uh, on the civilian sector. Uh, but of course, the, the backlash from c- congressional Republicans is that once that money comes into Iran, Iran basically has carte blanche of, of what to do with it. So uh, this this criticism is not going to go away. Uh, and isn't, st- isn't there a mechanism where um, the money goes directly to vendors for, I don't know, food, medicine, humanitarian stuff? There's supposed to be a control on that so that it just doesn't enter, you know, well, exactly. And that's, that's, that's where the, the Swiss come in to make sure that's, yeah. that, that money's implemented. But when, when you just look at the scope of the power, of course, that the Islamic Republic has over the country of Iran, what the argument is from, from the outside, from congressional Republicans, that um, you, you can't effectively prevent the regimes from putting their tinder hooks into the money some some way, somehow, someplace. Um, so this potentially could be a way for, for the Iranians to extract leverage. Uh, the Iranians, of course, taking to the UN General Assembly this week uh, and demanding goodwill for the United States uh, if they wanted to begin the Iran nuclear deal talks. So those still seem dead in the water. And, and the message from Iran after this deal is kiss the ring. Well, speaking of nuclear deal talks, let's talk about it, Nancy. The JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan on Action with Iran, the Iran nuclear deal is what we call it around here. Um, There's some great reporting this week, especially in the New York Times, how this hostage deal had its beginnings actually along with the JCPOA. Some two years ago, once it was clear that the Iran nuclear deal wasn't going anywhere, it was actually an opening for the hostages to to be released. But... The president of Iran at the UN General Assembly, Ibrahim Raisi, talked about it at the UN General Assembly just this week. Americans leaving the JCPOA showed an official trampling upon their commitments by that government. It was an inappropriate response to our fulfillment of commitments within that framework. A delicate dance between adversaries here, Nancy. But what do we know about where this $6 billion for hostages, five for five deal leaves the Iran nuclear deal? So very simply, we're at a point right now where there hasn't been any talks for a year. The last serious talks were a year ago. The U.S., the Iranians um, are not honoring it. Uh, the, The U.S. has left it. And there's very simply no hope of getting back to where we were in 2015 when the deal was signed. So if there were to be a deal, it would be a different understanding this time. And the last, and 
week, we've heard that Iran has banned some of the IAEA's um, most experienced inspectors from entering their country. These are the inspectors that sort of um, independently assess the Iran nuclear program. And we heard from the Europeans that there were sort of talks on the sidelines, but they didn't go anywhere. And so while I think the linkages between these two cases um, created an opportunity for securing um, the hostages, that the 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 interests from both sides uh, are not in the same place. I think there was a point where on this the prisoner deal that both sides wanted to reach an agreement. There's no indication that that exists in the case of the Iran nuclear deal. And so I think it's very fair to say that right now those talks are stalled with no prospect of hmm. real aggressive movement, despite the opening that they created for, for the hostage release. The longer-term prospect in the JCPOA there in the context of the recent hostage release. And, and speaking of political hostages, if you will, and international leverage, on Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich appeared in a Moscow court. The 31-year-old was seeking release from jail where he's been held by Russia on espionage charges. The appeals court declined to hear the case, and that means that Gerskovich will stay in jail at least until November 30th. He's already been detained for more than six months. He was arrested in Russia in March while on a reporting trip and accused of espionage by the Putin government, making him the first American journalist detained in Russia on such charges since the Cold War. The Wall Street Journal vehemently denies those allegations, and the State Department says he's wrongfully detained. Nancy, that's your paper. Uh, what, what do you want to say about Evan, and what happened this week with his latest appeal? Well, I think you summed up the case very well. I would note that not only does it not look like he'll get released November 30th because all we're trying the, – the, they're seeking now is a date that this will go on for longer than that, which of course is heartbreaking for all of us who care about him and want to secure his release. Um, that means that, in the, that between now and November 30th, he'll turn – 32. Um, and so um, we, I think at the paper, are feeling every every day that he is detained. I, I will say every time I see him in court, just on a personal level, I'm, I'm just struck by his constitution, how strong he is, how, um, how easygoing he sort of seems relative to the circumstances. He, you watch him and you feel so much um, strength from him and the way that he's conducted himself. And we learned this week that he's been playing chess with his father via mail just to keep his, um, his mind up. And I've just been taken aback with, by how he's handled everything. We get such small glimpses of him, but every time we do, I, I just walk away with incredible admiration for his strength um, under these circumstances. And so um, we uh, remain hopeful, of course, and believe that he should be released because the charges have, against him um, have no merit. Um, and and I think at the same time, I think we're all girding ourselves for the possibility that this goes on for an extended period. We want our readers and our viewers and our listeners, and we want our government to see Evan Gershkovich, to not forget him and to do everything they can to secure his release. That's Nancy Youssef, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. David Rennie is here, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. And Jack Detch, Pentagon and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Switching gears uh, just for a moment, gang, to a dispute that's important that most Americans probably haven't heard much about. This is the dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Nagorno 
Karabakh region. This week, Azerbaijan launched what it calls anti-terrorist activities in that region, saying it wanted to restore constitutional order and drive out what it said were Armenian troops. And that move could foreshadow a new war. Armenia and Azerbaijan have already fought two wars over Karabakh in the last three decades since the Soviet Union, when they were both members of that collapsed country. So David, what? just bring us up to speed on the Nagorno-Karabakh region and, and who lives there and, and briefly what this dispute is about. So if listeners imagine uh, the map of the world, you've got uh, Iran and Russia touching on the Caspian Sea, and you've got these two countries that you say used to be known as the Soviet Union, Armenia, Azerbaijan. And basically, as the Soviet Union broke up, uh, you had uh, populations that were on the wrong side of the border. You had a very large Armenian population in an area of this new Republic of Azerbaijan. And there was some pretty nasty fighting around the time of the Soviet Union breaking up, the end of the 80s, the early 90s. And Russia backed Armenia. And so although this is legally part of Azerbaijan, uh, it's been a kind of breakaway republic uh, with quite a lot of tension and fighting for about 20 years. Now, a couple of years ago, three years ago, the Azerbaijanis actually uh, had quite a go at this. The Russians uh, did, a, did a deal. You had Russian peacekeepers for the last three years in this disputed territory. What seems to have happened now, among other things, is not only have the Azerbaijani military uh, pulled off uh, quite a win again and we, we fear this will end with ethnic cleansing and hundreds of thousands of Armenians leaving. But the Russians didn't stop them. And here we think that there's some great power politics that uh, my colleagues at The Economist covering this say that essentially by not intervening, Vladimir Putin is showing the Armenians that they have offended him by trying to reach out a bit more to the West, trying hmm. to hedge their bets, not wanting to be wholly dependent on Russia. And so he's letting them go. And so there's going to be miserable scenes of civilians leaving their homes and fleeing essentially across the border into Armenia, because this seems to be the end of that breakaway enclave of Armenians in Azerbaijan. Stark news of leverage in that part of the world. Well, before we go, gang, I want to give each of you just a quick minute and a quick minute, if you please, um, to give us an idea of what's in your notebook, what you're looking forward to next week, what stories are on your mind. We've got just a, a quick couple of minutes, but Nancy, you go first. I don't know if I'm looking forward to it, but there's the prospect of a government shutdown in this country, and I think the impact on national security is uh, something we'll be following, particularly not particularly with um, the, the U.S. support of um, the war in Ukraine. David? I'm coming to Washington, D.C. for the first time since the pandemic to talk to a bunch of officials and members of Congress about U.S.-China. We'll be glad to have you uh, for the first time since the pandemic. It's been years, David. I hope we see you in person. Um, Jack Detch, what about you? What's, what's on your mind? Well, Nancy and I just traveled with uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to the Ukraine contact group in, in Germany this week. Uh, the Ukrainians are watching the clock quite closely. Six weeks until the rains start to fall, you see that winterization begin to take hold and the tanks and uh, those those vehicles can't move as well. So that might be a stopping point uh, for this counteroffensive. We'll see. Which brings us back to what Nancy mentioned at the beginning of, of uh, this little section here, which is funding, U.S. funding for the war in Ukraine and what happens with a government shutdown and Republican support for supporting Ukraine uh, in their war against Russia. All right. Well, before we go, I'd like to have a word. I can't believe I'm about to say this about Rahm Emanuel. The former Chicago mayor and now ambassador to Japan was reportedly warned 
by National Security Council staff not to take jabs at Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Now, I don't know if we're calling them tweets now, they're X's, whatever you want to call them, but here's Rahm Emanuel on X. President Xi's cabinet lineup is now resembling Agatha Christie, an Agatha Christie novel. And then there were none. First, Foreign Minister King Gong goes missing. Then the rocket force commanders go missing. Now the defense minister hasn't been seen in public for two weeks. Who's going to win this unemployment race? China's youth or Xi's cabinet? Hashtag mystery in Beijing building. A spokesman for Rahm Emanuel denied NBC's reporting of the wrist slap from the National Security Council, quote, saying, the guy is a superstar. And when you put Rahm on the field, you get the full Rahm. A superstar? Really? That's what Donald Trump's staff says about him. I guess Rahm Emanuel's too. Sorry, Ambassador Rahm Emanuel. And you can tell from those tweets. I want to thank all of our panelists for this hour. David Rennie is Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, co-host of The Drum Tower Podcast. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. And Jack Detch, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick from Vice News. We'll talk to you soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business. Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob.